Hi, I'm lead pastor, Noel Peepgrass. Welcome to the Exeter Valley Church Podcast. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. You're welcome to join us Sundays at 10 a.m. in our historic building at 218 Pine Street. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or visit our Instagram page. Thanks for listening. So we've been, uh, we've been studying the book of Matthew, right? And uh, last week I, I, I started a new section of Matthew, Matthew chapter 8. So this is the section where Jesus had been up on the mountain preaching the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. He's mostly preaching. If you go to that chapter, those chapters of your Bible, if you have one of those Bibles, you're going to see a bunch of red letters, right? The red letters signify the words of Jesus. And now all of a sudden we come to three chapters in a row here where we're not going to see very many red letters. Most of the letters here turn to black because Jesus is not so much teaching, he's doing. And so we have this picture of this Jesus who was up on the mountain giving the words of God to his people, a lot like Moses back in the old times would have been doing. And now he's come down from the mountain And he's doing the things that he preached about. He was teaching about the kingdom. He was teaching about what it meant to be a citizen of his kingdom. And now he's going to show us. Now he's he's doing the ways of the kingdom. So last week we talked about this passage where Jesus had come down and he was approached by a leper with great faith, right? And he healed this leper. And then he was approached by a centurion of great faith. And he healed the centurion's servant. And then he went on to heal Peter's mother-in-law. And we realized that, yes, Jesus cares even about mother-in-laws. Amen. That's right. I got one mother-in-law giving me an amen. Yeah. And then he healed everybody else in the crowd. It wasn't just those three. He healed everybody else. He's casting out demons. He's healing people. We learned in these stories that Jesus' kingdom work, it started with outsiders, didn't it? We prayed for the outsiders this morning. And, and, This is Jesus' heart, to be outside in. And we found out last week by the things that Jesus did that uh, sometimes those that think they're on the inside are actually more on the outside than those who are on the outside. You know what I mean? And so Jesus was healing these people who seemed like outsiders, right? A leper, no access to the city, no access to social life in that time. A centurion's servant. You know, his like oppressive military controller. Jesus healed this man's servant. What are you doing, Jesus? You're healing the bad guy's servant. And then a woman. A little better in that culture than a leper or an enemy soldier. But still, not someone with full access to the temple even in that day. And maybe that's hard, you know, it's hard for us to get ourselves in that Situation, But this is how Jesus was operating, right? This was a culture that he was operating in, and he was bringing those on the outside to the inside. So in this morning's passage, we find ourselves in between these outsider healings at the beginning of the chapter and, and the supernatural miracles to come at the end of the chapter. You probably are familiar with the story of Jesus calming the storm and uh, casting out the demons into the, the pigs. That's coming next week. But we're in between these two stories of healing. It's actually five stories of healing that we're in between. It's as if Matthew is wanting to show us how people are responding to Jesus, right? 
It's like he wants to show us how people are responding to this Jesus who teaches with authority that's not of this world. And then not only does he teach with authority that's not of this world, he's living with authority. He literally has authority over sickness. He has authority over the demonic realm. He has authority over the, uh, the, the, uh, the supernatural. Mother nature was the word I was looking for. And we're going to see that next week in those stories. But this Jesus has authority and the people are seeing it. I, mean, I just put yourself, I mean, I want to sometimes, I, I, and I know I may be giving myself too much credit, because if I were actually there, maybe I would have been just like those religious leaders who, who didn't really get Jesus. But sometimes I just imagine, like, man, what would it have been like to see this man teaching with this authority, then coming down the mountain and doing it, you know? Imagine if you were there the day he calmed the storm. Imagine if you were there to see him uh, cast out the demons and all the different miraculous things that he did. Well, today we're going to see three different responses to this life of Jesus. And, and I think we're going to have the opportunity to consider for ourselves how we choose to respond to Jesus. And hopefully, we'll decide to take a step closer, a step deeper into discipleship. The first, uh, the first little uh, story we get is, is about these huge crowds. The first response to Jesus we see is huge crowds. And, and we've seen these crowds all throughout Matthew's story, starting in chapter 4, really. Huge crowds follow Jesus. You can imagine that this would be the case, that the guy's just walking around Exeter, preaching and healing and casting out demons and calming the storms. Can you go back a couple slides, Asher? Thanks, buddy. <clears throat> yes. So the first response to Jesus was huge crowds, okay? In verse 18, it says, When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. So this is weird, in my opinion, right? Like, as a preacher and teacher, I can tell you, I want to draw the crowds, right? I mean, that's kind of one of the things that we're up to, bring the crowds so we can tell them about this Jesus. But Jesus was not like that. He actually tried to uh, stave off the crowd. Remember last week when he healed the leper? He tells the leper, what did he tell the leper? He didn't go say, like, hey, go tell everybody you know. He actually told them, keep it quiet. There's this way in which Jesus goes about his life, and all the while, he's resisting the crowds. You know, it's like he's, he knows that, like, things have to happen, and it's not about the crowds, you know? Like, he, he's going to bring about the Father's will, the Father's kingdom, without the crowds or in spite of the crowds, so all the way, he's been avoiding them as best he can. And, and, and still, his ministry draws an incredible, enormous following. And I, I thought to myself and wondered, because we know that Jesus was tempted, right? Without sin, but still he was tempted. And he must have been tempted at least a little bit to become a celebrity. Can you imagine all these people following you, right? But instead, he's telling people like the leper to keep the miracle to themselves, See, Jesus, he knew that his ministry wasn't about becoming a cult hero. Jesus was, despite his power, he was perfectly submitted to the will of his Father. And he showed us in the way that he handled himself, in the way that he handled the crowds, that uh, power used rightly has to be submitted properly. 
Power used rightly must be properly submitted. The main thing, though, that you have to understand about Jesus' relationship to these crowds is that he did not make it his aim to please the crowds. Jesus was not here to please the crowds. His aim was to please his Father in heaven. Only and always, Jesus' aim was to please his Father in heaven. So we're going to be challenged in today's passage uh, to lay down our own pursuits, our own uh, desire for ambition, fame, maybe even earthly comfort. But let us not forget the man we follow, because he laid it all down first, despite the crowds, right? I mean, he of all people was worthy of a crowd. He of all people was worthy of a crown. But instead, he picked up a cross. He didn't chase the crowd. He didn't chase the crown that he deserved. Instead, he laid it all down. And he picked up a cross and died in our place. So the huge crowds are the, the first example of the response to Jesus' acts in chapter 8. In the second response, we see uh, uh, a teacher come to Jesus, a scribe. It's, it calls him, in, in my translation, a teacher of the law. We're going to introduce this person as a, you can go to the next slide, Asher. We're going to introduce this person as uh, the overeager teacher or the hasty teacher of the law. Now, um, in between, uh, I think I was saying in between these stories of healing and these supernatural acts, so start of chapter 8 and then the end of chapter 8, we get a bit of a, what some scholars call a discipleship buffer, where we've seen Jesus act in these really incredible ways. We've seen him bring healing, comfort, and care. But then the story stops for just a second to remind us the importance of discipleship. And it's as if Matthew is wanting to tell us that faith in Jesus must be accompanied by what? Obedience, right? It's not enough just to believe. You do have to obey. And obedience is a fruit of our faith. So challenge and discipleship, they're, they're just as central to the mission of the church as comfort, care, and healing. So we comfort people, we care for people, we heal people. We want to see Jesus do those things. But Jesus also brought challenge and discipleship. See, Jesus knew he had something to do deeper than heal. Yes, he cares about the physical, but he really cares about your heart. He really cares about the spiritual. And Jesus had to make disciples. That's what we call being a disciple. Being a disciple is about growing on the inside, right? See, disciples are, as Jesus said in the sermon, they're the salt of the earth. I love this phrase that I got this week. They're the antibody to the evil in the world. Disciples are the antibody to the evil in the world. True disciples of Jesus don't just receive healing from Jesus. They, too, pick up their crosses and follow him. You guys, if we want to see change in our community... The answer is for us to grow as disciples. Our community will not grow and experience Jesus beyond the extent to which we grow and experience Jesus. Like, come on, Jesus. You start right here, Lord. You start right here. 
So we've got this hasty teacher. Verse 19, then a teacher of the law came to Jesus and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Now, now on its face, the teacher's statement, uh, it seems to be a good one, right? I mean, I would recommend, like if you, I, I may have recommended, if you ever came face to face with Jesus, saying, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go, right? It kind of seems like this is pretty good. We're off to a good start, right? So on its face, it's like the statement seems to be a good one. I mean, what's so bad about telling Jesus that you'll follow him wherever he'll go? I mean, shouldn't we all be making this commitment to follow Jesus wherever he goes? But see, the thing that we don't know in this story is what Jesus knew. See, Jesus had the ability to read between the lines, right? He always knew what people were thinking. So he never just judged exactly what they said. He was able to judge where their heart was at, right? <clears throat> so this is Jesus, the God-man, who reads our hearts, and he challenges our core motivations. And he gets beyond just the spoken word. He's the God of the internal. He's not the God of merely the external. So I think there's a, there's a few things that we can pick up on here, all right, and, and give us some clues as to why Jesus responded the way that he responded. Because he didn't just like he didn't just like congratulate the guy for saying, "Oh, you have the best attitude you could have." Yeah, follow me. Like he didn't. He didn't. Right. The first thing that we notice is how does he address Jesus? What does he say? Teacher. He addresses him as teacher. Is Jesus a teacher? Yes. Is that all that he was? No. No. So he, he, he shows that he, he kind of misses it, right? This teacher of the law, he misses Jesus' lordship. The second person that's to come, the hesitant son I'm going to talk about in just a second, he says, Lord. That's how he addressed Jesus. But this teacher of the law, perhaps puffed up by his own intellect, calls him teacher. There's like pride in that, potentially. I think that's what Jesus is noticing here. But Jesus is more than just a great teacher, you guys. If that's all Jesus is, we're missing the point. Matthew is trying to convince us that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the King of Kings. He's the Lord of all lords. He's not just a great teacher. Look, and, and here's the thing. If Jesus isn't Lord of all, He's not Lord at all. Do you get what I'm saying? You have to make Jesus Lord. You have to make him Lord. He's more than a teacher. He's Lord. That's the whole point, that we would make him Lord, master, in charge, the one we submit our lives to. And this teacher of the law that addresses Jesus, he makes the fatal mistake of referring to Jesus as teacher, not as Lord. You know, in the book of Matthew, only non-disciples refer to Jesus as teacher. Only non-disciples. You, uh, you can take my word for it, or you can go to Matthew 12, 38, Matthew 19, 16, Matthew 22, 16, Matthew 24, 36, or you can just read the whole book of Matthew this week by yourself and search for these stories, okay? But only non-disciples address Jesus as teacher in the book of Matthew. So Matthew, as the author here, he's trying to communicate something pretty profound right here. That teacher of the law did not recognize Jesus as Lord. Critically important. Also, you guys, it's as if the teacher seems to have something to offer Jesus. 
you know? Like he, like he wants to get on with this man who's attracting huge crowds. You know what I'm saying? It's almost as if he's trying to latch on to Jesus' celebrity status. Like, oh, hey, you great teacher of the law. I'm also a good teacher of the law. Like, I got something to bring. I could piggyback off your ministry a little bit, maybe. Is this the way to approach the Lord of Lords? And I think, you know, I think Jesus sniffs out the teacher's pet here, you know? And, and as a teacher, I know I am an authority on, on what it means to be a teacher's pet, right? See, teacher's pets, like, they do good things, but they do them for the wrong reasons, you know what I'm saying? A teacher's pet, like, says all kinds of nice things to the teacher, not to, like, honor the teacher, but to, in some way, like, honor themselves, right? The teacher's pet knows that if I get in good graces with the teacher, well, then my status in the class is elevated, right? And I think that's what's happening here with the teacher of the law. He's actually trying to establish his own position. Jesus smells foul right away. He's totally unimpressed with this impressive teacher of the law. You know, and just a warning, you know, like many uh, churches or other evangelistic groups, uh, we, like we can get overly eager to convert leaders like this teacher of the law. Like notice Jesus doesn't say like, oh, you know what? You're really bright. You would really help my ministry. Come along, right? I can tell you as a church planner, sometimes that's a, that's a temptation, right? Like, oh, you're really smart. You know a lot. You could come and help us quite a bit. That's not what Jesus does. He's totally unimpressed by this impressive teacher. He doesn't care about our track record. He doesn't care about this guy's track record. He wants those that will lay it all down and follow him, no matter the cost. Jesus wants disciples, people who will actually obey, that will actually follow, that will recognize him as Lord. You're in charge, Jesus. That's what it takes. So finally, I, I think we can learn from this over, uh, sorry, the word almost came out, ogre, uh, overly eager teacher. It's a bit of a tongue twister. This overly eager teacher, see, sometimes eagerness that has not first counted the cost will not see itself fruitful. Uh, anyone ever known somebody? I mean, it would never be one of you, but any, anyone ever known somebody who uh, New Year's Day, big resolution, I'm going to go to the gym five days a week. I'm going to eat nothing but, like, whole grains or whatever it is, whatever the diet fat is, you know. I'm not going to even look at a carb for the next 12 months, you know. And I, I, I used to be a personal trainer, and I would see this happen year in and year out. They're like people who get overzealous before they've actually counted the cost. And it's like, well, do you know how much, you know, wild salmon costs? Like, you know what I'm saying? And then, like, two weeks... Two weeks in, they're like discouraged by the actual cost of their, their healthy uh, resolution, you know? And then they quit, right? I think there's a way in which we've got to count the cost. If we're going to follow Jesus, we've got to count the cost. And this guy says he'll go wherever, but Jesus sniffs him out. And he's like, I don't know if you will go with me forever, right? He's like, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is like, well, hey, you're a pretty impressive guy. I know you'd like the crowds that I draw, but I'm actually homeless. You want to go there? That's what Jesus is saying. 
So first we gotta count the cost, right? And, and I would love to just, <laughs> I mean, I would love for like 10 people to come to Jesus today, right? But what I'd love even more than immediate conversion is someone who counts the cost. And then having counted the cost, identifies Jesus as Lord and decides to follow him. Like really and truly, not just from the mouth, wherever he leads. See, following Jesus comes with it a sense of total insecurity, right? He's in charge because he's Lord. And I know, I, I mean, I don't know if that, like, it, it, would, it would maybe grow the church faster if I were to preach, like, hey, follow Jesus and you're going to end up with a Porsche, right? Like, I, this is maybe not the best sermon to preach uh, to, a, to a new church, but I'm telling you, the word of God, Jesus is telling you, you better count the cost, because it's going to cost you your life. The Son of Man has no place to lie his head. Following Jesus, it's not a destination, it's a journey. One that often puts one out on the streets, looking for a place to call home. Look, I'm, I'm telling you, if you're going to follow Jesus, it's going to get hard. I can't promise you easy streets. And that's what Jesus was saying. Jesus was like, you want to follow me? I'm homeless. Come follow me. <laughs> and we know the end of the story, right? I mean, do you think that that teacher of the law really would follow Jesus to the cross? I don't know. It gets really hard to follow Jesus, okay? And, and that's not the end of the story. I'll tell the end of the story at the end of my story today. You know, and something about the title Jesus uses, Son of Man, Son of man is used 30 times in the book of Matthew. He says, the son of man has no place to lie its head. 30 times in the book of Matthew, um, Matthew, the author, used this phrase, son of man, to refer to Jesus. Every time, it's, it's to refer to Jesus. If you ever wondered where that phrase came from, uh, Daniel chapter 7, in, a, uh, in an apocalyptic vision, that's a hard word for me to say, apocalyptic vision, Daniel 7, 13 through 14. Let me read it to you. This is the origin, I think, of that phrase. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. This is Daniel's vision of Jesus. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is the Son of Man, Jesus, ironically, the Son of God. Not so ironically, this Son of Man, let me remind you, he's the one the Old Testament talked about over and over and over again. Matthew is reminding his mostly Jewish audience the Son of Man. That's language from Daniel. This is the man that Daniel had that apocalyptic vision about. They would have been steeped in the words of the Hebrew Bible. They would have known, Son of Man. Ah, he's referring to the, the Daniel vision. It's just proof. It's like Matthew's way of convincing these people. Jesus, he's the Messiah. Don't miss him. You've been waiting for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years for this man to come save you. Here he is, the Messiah. He's more than a great teacher, you guys. 
He's more than a great teacher. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the king of a kingdom that will never pass away. This is Jesus, the son of man. So after Jesus rejects this hasty teacher and his overly eager pursuit of himself, uh, Matthew introduces us to another disciple. This one is less hasty and uh, more hesitant. Uh, Verse 21, another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. So notice first that this disciple, he gets it right in one way. What does he say? Lord. He recognizes Jesus as not just a great teacher. He recognizes him as Lord. He doesn't call him teacher like the really smart teacher of the law did. Perhaps this is why Jesus tells him to come follow me. Jesus actually extended an invitation to the hesitant son. The first guy he's just kind of like dismissive of, right? But this guy, he says, follow me. So he doesn't outright dismiss him at all. The hasty teacher didn't receive such an invitation. But Jesus does not grant him permission to carry out his request to first. Next key word. First. What did this guy ask? Lord, first, let me go bury my father. Now again, it seems like a perfectly reasonable request. I hope someday... My children will see to my, you know, whatever. I think I'm going to be cremated when I die, but I hope they'll take care of me and not just let me rot out in the middle of the road or wherever it is that I end up breathing my last breath, right? It's a perfectly, you know, good thing to take care of one's father. Uh, And and you guys, this is not an anti-parent passage, okay? That's not the point here. The, uh, you may have heard of the Ten Commandments. The fifth one, Asher, Honor thy father and mother, right? That's the fifth commandment. We've got a, we've got a ways to go, Asher. Come on, buddy. <laughs> honor your father and mother, right? And it even says, honor your father and mother so that it might go well for you, right? The teaching of the Bible, Jameson, is that it's good to honor your father and mother. Shazam! He just instantly changed right there, isn't he? <laughs> Come on, we're believing in faith, Zach. Come on now. So this isn't an anti-parent passage. This isn't a rebellious passage. It's not Jesus saying, you know, screw the old man, right? I mean, elsewhere we see in Scripture, Jesus affirms this teaching of the Old Testament. For example, Matthew 15, and also uh, 1 Timothy 5.8, Paul's instructions to Timothy. So Jesus is pro taking care of your parents. He's pro honoring your parents. But... As we see here, and again, Matthew chapter 10, we're going to get there. We could go to Luke's gospel as well, chapter 14 of Luke's gospel. Look, absolutely nothing takes priority over Jesus' call to discipleship. Not even the commandment to honor your father and mother, right? And a proper burial would have, a proper burial would have been one of the primary ways that a Jew thought of honoring his father. Jesus says nothing takes priority over the call to follow him. He's demanding. (laughs) Jesus is demanding. Didn't we sing that? Isn't that the, the lyric that we sing? He makes this demand that he take the place of God in our lives. After all, he's Lord. He's Lord. 
He must come first. To put anyone or anything in front of Jesus is to deify that thing. It's idol worship. So yes, honor your father and mother, but don't put them in front of Jesus. It's an issue of primary allegiance. He's not coming against the honoring of your father and mother. He's setting out an order of priority. Jesus comes first. It reminded me of, uh, I went to Westmont College. Our school motto was uh, in Latin. It was Christus Primatum Tenens, which they told me means Christ preeminent in all things. Christ first in all things. Azusa Pacific, they were like, I, I, they were like a more modern, I guess, like Christian college. Their slogan was God first. And that's what Jesus says. Christ preeminent in all things. God first. Those are great mottos. They're super theologically sound mottos. I was like kind of impressed. I'm like, yeah, Azusa, nice job. I said mean things about you guys while we were playing against you guys, but that was a good motto. He must come first. This is the moral of the story here. Jesus must come first. You know, how would it have been different if the disciples said, second, let me go bury my father? Like Jesus wasn't against the idea of letting him bury his father. Jesus was against him making anything first other than Jesus. Or what if he had said, Jesus, I'll go with you, but I'm trusting you to take care of my father's burial. Right? But that's not what this disciple said. He said, first, before I follow you, let me go do this and take care of this. And Jesus will not have it that way. Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Do you notice what I... I I sometimes go King James when I recite. Do you guys, anybody ever do that? Seek ye first. What does ye mean? I don't know. I'll explain it later, kids. So Jesus has to be first. Notice what he says in uh, verse 22 at the end of verse 22. He says, let the dead bury their own dead. Let the dead bury their own dead. What does that reveal about what Jesus thinks of human nature? And I've said this before, but sometimes, and, and I even do it. I said it this week in class, and I... And I, like, regretted it. But we'll say, oh, like, he's a good person. Like, oh, she's a really good person, you know? Is that what the Bible says about us? No. That's why we need Jesus. If we were really good people, we wouldn't need Jesus. We need Jesus because we're not. And Matthew says, what does he say? He says, flatly, secular culture, it's not just bad, it's dead. Let the dead bury their own dead. John Calvin said it this way, the only ones who are really living are the ones who concentrate their efforts and all the activity of their life upon God's obedience. If we're not following Jesus, if he's not first, we're dead. We're literally, flatly dead. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. Jesus, uh, is Jesus compassionate? Shake your head. He's compassionate, right? But, I mean, he's not overly sentimental, is he? I mean, he gives excruciating orders. Like, let the dead bury their own dead. It's crazy, this Jesus. He's not crazy. He's just, it's crazy to me because I'm crazy. Jesus' love gives and demands in equal measure. His love gives and demands in equal measure. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a German uh, author. Maybe you guys are familiar with his life. Um, he wrote a landmark book that's now quite old, uh, 
early 1900s, I guess maybe mid-1900s, called The Cost of Discipleship. The Cost of Discipleship. And he says it this way in The Cost of Discipleship. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And isn't that the irony, right? That in the life of the disciple is that to avoid death, you have to die your own death. In order to take on the resurrection of Jesus, we have to die the death of Jesus. Look, I have good news for you today. You can have resurrection life. You can have it. You can live forever. But you got to die to yourself, just like Jesus died. And that's what Jesus is communicating to these people that he meets on the streets here. Look, you guys, what is the thing? What are the things that you're putting in front of following Jesus? What are the things you're putting in front of following Jesus? Is it money? Is it ambition? Career success? Possessions? Status? Maybe it's just the opinion of your friends. Maybe it's your comfort, like status quo. What is it that you're putting in front of following Jesus? You know, I mean, not to make this about me, but, but when I, um, I guess when you say that, it means you're going to make it about you. I just realized that. I hope this is helpful. You know, when, when I heard the Lord confirm his call on my life to build his church, uh, the first thing I asked him when I heard him confirm that call on my life was, what about my coaching clothes? I think in a way, I was like, hey, let me first do this, or can I still do this? And if you know my story, like I had, I wanted to be, like I wanted to have a stadium named after me someday. You know, that's the kind of coach I wanted to be. I cared so much about that part of my life. And when, when God called me out of coaching on the field and into coaching in the church, he asked me to leave that behind. He said, it's got to die, Noel. I've got something else for you, but that's got to die. It's not about your ambition anymore, right? It's about following me. And I'm just wondering, like, what is it for you? What's in the way of following Jesus? This morning, Jesus bids you, come and die, that you might truly live. We're going to get to Matthew 13. Hopefully I haven't preached it uh, all before we actually get there, but here's what it says in verse 44, 45, and 46. I love this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value... He went away and sold everything he had, and he bought it. What a story of putting this, the treasure that we have in Jesus. Like Jesus is a treasure. Jesus is a pearl of great value. I promise you, it's worth selling everything that you have to go buy that field, to take on that, that pearl. This is the reward. You guys, the great missionary martyr, maybe you've heard of him, maybe you haven't, you could look him up. Jim Elliott, before he died, as a missionary, he said it this way. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This morning, folks, I'm asking you, what do you need to sell in order to buy that field? 
What's holding you back from following Jesus completely? What's holding us back? What gets in the way? What comes to mind? And I'm just praying in the spirit that right now God's bringing something to your mind that you know has been getting in the way. And maybe it's gotten in the way for years. And if you're thinking of something right now, I think the voice of the Lord is, is putting that on your heart. And I would just tell you, sell it all. Follow him completely. Look, the goal is that you might truly take hold of that which cannot be lost. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We're going to respond uh, to Jesus today in worship. And Jake will come back up. And you can come forward and respond by taking the sacraments. The Lord's Supper is a great way to join yourself in the death of Jesus through his body and his blood poured out. We do that every week in remembrance of what he did for us, in remembrance of the death that he died, to join with him in that death so that we might have the same resurrection life that he had. You can also come forward, you guys. I'll be here for prayer. Um, I'd love to pray with you if you want prayer this morning. You can stay where you're at and you can sing. That's an option too. But don't miss the chance this morning to truly search your heart and consider the cost. What are you holding on to? What is Jesus inviting you to let go of so that you can take hold of true life? Let's pray. Lord God, don't leave us alone this morning. Father God, do not leave us alone. I'm begging you right now, Father, to come hard after our hearts. And I, do, I just pray that by your spirit, you'd be speaking to our hearts right now, Lord. What, what is getting in the way? What is getting in the way of putting you first, Jesus? Lord, we just, ah, oh, we want to see you rightly as that treasure. That'd be worth selling everything we had to go buy the field and obtain. To see you rightly as that pearl of great value, the thing that we've been longing for, like a merchant off to sea. I pray, God, that you would give us the courage to take whatever step you're calling us to take this morning, Lord. And if that's to come forward and pray, I pray for the courage to do it, Lord. If that's to have a conversation with a friend when we leave this place, whatever it is, God, I pray that uh, you just remove the barriers in our hearts that would keep us from making you first. We love you, Jesus. Amen.